Hello, I'm Gary Burgess. Welcome to the ME Show, supported by the ME Association. In this series, I meet experts working to treat those with ME or research its cause to find a cure. This episode, I speak to Dr. Sarah Myhill, a prominent campaigner for people with ME, whose own clinic has helped thousands of people with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. She's also no stranger to controversy, notching up multiple run-ins with the General Medical Council, with whom she's currently battling to bring charges against the authors of the controversial PACE trial. As you'll hear, she's a no-nonsense straight talker who's helped people with varying degrees of severity when it comes to their illness. And I get the impression she's someone we're very lucky to have in our corner. Dr. Sarah Myhill, welcome to the ME Show. How are you today? Fine, thank you very much for inviting me to speak. I'm very happy to do that. I am delighted because I know you're an incredibly busy person. For for people who don't know, you are one of the people that those in the know say is an absolute master of helping people with, with ME. What, what is it you actually do, Sarah? Oh, goodness me. I think that the only thing I do that's different is I ask the right questions. I mean, the point here is that... Um, Chronic fatigue syndrome and ME are not diagnoses. They are clinical pictures. And we have to ask the question, why? Now, chronic fatigue syndrome, pure chronic fatigue syndrome, is the clinical picture we see when energy delivery mechanisms are impaired. ME is the clinical picture we see when we have chronic fatigue syndrome, i.e. poor energy delivery mechanisms, and inflammation. And that inflammation can be there for reasons of allergy, for reasons of chronic infection, or for reasons of autoimmunity. So with that roadmap, as I call it, we can start to look at the different symptoms, try and uh, explain which mechanism applies to which symptom, because if you can work out the mechanism of why things are happening, then that has obvious implications for treatment. And, and given it, I mean, it sounds like a game of whack-a-mole where you're sort of <laughs> finding one symptom, then another pops up and, 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 and trying to get to the root of it. Um, what, once you do that, what, what success do you have in, in helping people? You know, we, we hear time and time again that there's, there's no definitive understanding of both cause or indeed finding a cure. So what is it you're able to do? Well, uh, so what I'm doing is um, identifying the root causes and, you know, um, uh, my success rate is increasing all the time because I'm learning new stuff as I go along. And, um, you know, and, and what I'm trying to do is put in place interventions that anybody can do, i.e. you don't need a, an expensive doctor to treat you. You can, you know, give them the right information and maybe help from uh, you know, trained others. You can um, get yourself an awful long way. And, you know, even if, you know, you can't access all the necessary tests to um, work out exactly what's wrong with you, the basic package, the basic starting point for treating all cases of chronic fatigue syndrome and all cases of ME, and indeed for preventing heart disease, cancer and dementia, is exactly the same. And what is that? Um, first of all, um, people have to learn to pace their activities properly. 
And without good pacing, you know, you will constantly, it's like an athlete being in overtraining. If an athlete is constantly overtraining, he's never going to achieve peak performance. It's the same with the ME patients. You know? And a very useful analogy here is um, what I call the Micawber equation. I mean, Mr. Micawber from Charles Dickens, um, you know, his favorite saying was, you know, income 20 shillings, you know, outgoing 21 shillings result misery. <laughs> outgoing 19 shillings result happiness and it's exactly the same with energy so the first thing people have to do is recognize how much energy they've got in the day and don't overspend because you need some energy for healing and repair and then as i call it we have to look at energy delivery mechanisms you know how can we give that person a bigger energy bucket so they've got more to spend and a very, very useful analogy here is the car analogy. And, and you know, essentially, human beings are an engine. We're a, we're a complicated engine, but the, um, the parallels are the same. So for your car to go well, you're going to have four big players. First of all, you've got to have the right fuel in the tank. Then you've got to have your engine working well. Then you have to have the accelerator pedal set correctly and the adrenal box working as well. And, um, uh, and the product of all those interventions is your core temperature. So by measuring core temperature, it gives us a very good handle on energy delivery mechanisms. Now, with respect to the fuel in the tank, the human body, in fact, all mammal bodies, from horses and cats to dogs and whatever, all um, um, human bodies, all, all mammal bodies, function best when they're running on fats and ketones. And fats and ketones are the evolutionary correct diet, now, or the evolutionary correct fuel, rather. Now, part of the reason why we are seeing epidemics of chronic fatigue syndrome is because we have been given this nonsensical and evolutionary incorrect advice that carbohydrates are somehow good for us. Now, carbohydrates are a very useful evolutionary tool because they allow us to get fat in autumn. You know, what happens in autumn? You know, we have a carbohydrate bonanza. We have fruit, we have root vegetables, we have pulses, we have grains. We eat them in an addictive way, and that gets us fat. And that is survival value for the winter. So in short, sharp bursts, metabolic syndrome, running the body in carbohydrates is very helpful for survival. Of course, primitive man stopped eating uh, carbohydrates because he had to. You know, the autumn harvest dried up. He was into winter. He was back into hunting mode. But be in order to make us eat those foods, nature had to get us addicted to them. And carbohydrates are very addictive. Sugar is one of the worst addictions that I see. And um, because we are now clever, because we have evolved fantastically complex and brilliant systems of agriculture, we can eat carbohydrates all year round because we can, and we do. And to my mind, that is a major driver of chronic fatigue syndrome because we are, it's a little bit like putting petrol in your diesel car. You know, it, it'll chug over for a bit, but it'll break down eventually. So the starting point um, is a paleo ketogenic diet. Where does this fit in with somebody who perhaps is listening to this who would consider themselves to be severely affected, to be housebound, to, to be bedbound? Uh, do these theories and, and that energy pocket you're describing of, of, you know, energy in and out, does that still apply? Is that still useful, helpful advice? Of course. In fact, even more so for those people. Um, I mean, the more ill you are, the more diligently you have to apply these regimes. The trouble is, 
in the short term, putting these regimes in place to improve energy delivery and so on will make people worse. Why? Because it's hard metabolic work for the body to switch from running on carbohydrates and sugars to running on fat and fiber. Because as we do these things, we trigger what I call detox reactions. Because you lose weight, you mobilize toxins from fat, and that gives you an acute poisoning. And of course, many people with ME have got chronic infections. You know, what do microbes love? They love to run on sugar. That's their favorite fuel. I mean, this is why diabetics are more prone to getting infections than, um, than um, people who are non-diabetic, because they're running high blood sugar and the microbes get in readily. So if you starve those microbes of sugars and carbohydrates through diet, you'll start to kill them. And what happens when you kill them? You get Herxheimer reactions, i.e. you get initial worsening. And that can be very painful. And this is the most difficult aspect of um, managing people who are severely ill because they're on a very tight um, energy equation. They can't, almost can't afford to get any worse. They can't bear to be any more ill than they actually are. And it's a very hard path to ask them to walk. But it's, it's the only way forward that I know. How long does that phase last for? Are you talking days or weeks or months? Uh, uh, probably weeks and possibly months for a few. Uh, I mean, most of this, there's been some lovely work done in America by an, a doctor called Dr. Martin Lerner, who um, he treated his ME patients with antivirals. The point here is that Epstein-Barr virus um, is causally involved in about 80% of patients with ME. So um, he simply treated them with the antiviral drug valacyclovir, and he really got very good results. He's produced four papers uh, with respect to the use of long-term antivirals, very good results. But those patients suffered Herxheimer reactions, and typically they peaked at about 14 weeks. That was the results of, of his um, um, uh, uh, studies that he did. So with those very severely patients, you may have to start with low doses of antiviral and build up gradually um, um, in order to you don't get too bad a DARF reaction, but at the same time you're killing the virus and reducing the viral load. Sarah, how did you get into all of this? You don't wake up one morning and think, I'm going to deal with MECFS, do you? <laughs> oh, my goodness me. I've been at this um, since about 1981. So I'm a long-term player. Uh, and I went straight from medical school, straight into general practice. Um, and once in general practice, um, I very quickly learned that I knew very little about real medicine in the community. <laughs> and people were coming to me asking very good questions. You know, yes, I've got migraine. Why have I got migraine? Yes, I've got blood pressure. Why have I got high blood pressure? And, you know, they were not prepared to be palmed off with the trite answers, oh, it's your age, oh, it's stress, which is what is often used. So I was really trying to ask the question why, and in those early days, um, it very quickly became apparent that diet was a very big player. And initially, my interest was in allergy. And, you know, I quickly discovered many cases of migraine, irritable bowel syndrome, arthritis are all due to allergy to foods. And by cutting out specific foods, typically dairy products, often grains, very often yeast or whatever, you could see dramatic responses. But nowhere... Nowhere was that information in the medical textbooks. I'd never been taught at medical school, but it was actually a very common problem. And I suddenly realized that there was a, an enormous hole in my knowledge. And of course, of course, I had people coming along complaining of fatigue. In fact, you know, tired all the time, what the GPs write in the left-hand column, T-A-T-T, -T, is probably the single most common complaint that one sees in general practice. Now, uh, what I did find 
is that many of my allergic patients also commented, oh, and my energy is improved. So I knew allergy was a, was a big player. I mean, you look at somebody with hay fever. We know hay fever is caused by allergy to grass pollen. But if you just saw a patient with acute hay fever, you'd say, oh, they've got flu. You know, they're, they're, they're running a fever, they're feeling ill, they're pouring snot from their noses, they're coughing up like mad. But it isn't. Allergy is the great mimic. It can produce any symptom. An allergy, as I call it, can kick an immunological hole in the energy bucket. So those allergic patients whose energy was improved, I wasn't doing anything for their energy delivery mechanisms, but I was damping the immune system down. I was stopping the immune system from being so busy. And guess what? The immune system is our standing army. And guess what? Armies need a lot of energy. If, you're going to, if your arm is going to fight, huge resources have to go into that. And so the body is effectively being drained of vital resources, that's raw material and energy. That was the starting point of it. Um, um, but, but the real breakthrough for me, well, it took me about 25 years to arrive at, I have to say, um, had to do with the engine of our car. Um, and as I'm sure you know, the energy molecule, you know, the, um, um, which is called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, that is the molecule that is the, it's the mechanism by which we deliver energy to the body. So with ATP, you, know, you can contract a muscle, you can conduct a nerve, you can detox a molecule or whatever. And so my question is, how well can the body make ATP? Now, I work very closely with um, um, the most brilliant biochemist, um, a guy called John McLaren Howard, who's been in biochemistry for decades. Uh, He worked at Biolab for many, many years, and we had a very good cooperation. And I said to John in about the late 1990s, you know, I think that it's all about the energy molecule ATP, and that comes from mitochondria. I want a test of mitochondrial function, i.e., how well do our engines work? And John, being the brilliant biochemist he was, um, discovered a test that is, was in widespread use in research circles, but hadn't been given clinical application. Um, and he developed this test for clinical use. And the first thing that we did was a study. So I collected 70 patients who hadn't responded to my usual dietary regimes, my usual thyroid regimes, my usual adrenal regimes, and so on, who had pure chronic fatigue syndromes. And I took the blood tests, and the patient and I, between us, we agreed an energy score. You know, oh, this guy's functioning at maybe 50% of his potential, maybe 20% of his potential, or whatever. So we then sent the bloods down to um, Acumen Laboratories, um, who did the testing. And then the results were sent on to a third party. That was Dr. Norman Booth, who is at Mansfield College, Oxford. Um, He's a physicist there. He had an interest in chronic fatigue syndrome because his wife was a sufferer. And uh, Dr. Norman Booth did the analyzing and the number crunching. So effectively, this was a blind study because I didn't know what the results of the mitochondrial function tests were. Um, um, John didn't know how sick the patients were. That was Acumen Laboratories. And Norman Booth, as I say, um, uh, did the number crunching. And what was so fascinating is that those patients who had the worst mitochondrial function tests were the illest, i.e. their engines were going very slow and they had no energy to spend. And those with the best mitochondrial function test were the least ill, if you like. They had the best energy scores. 
And that was a very um, powerful evidence that mitochondria are centrally important in patients with ME and chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, uh, this paper, uh, and we then went on to produce another two papers which support uh, that contention. And indeed, I know from my clinical work, when I correct the mitochondrial function, which can, and of course, mitochondria can be going slow for at least three reasons. Think of them as a simple engine. Now, what would make your engine go slow? Not having the raw materials for it to work. So you've got to have the right, you've got to have the oil in the tank, you've got to have the, um, the spark plugs working properly, you've got to have the timing right um, for the engine to go at all. And, and uh, so it can be going slow because it lacks the raw materials to function. Or it can be going slow because it's blocked by something. And again, these tests tell us if those mitochondria are blocked by something. So, um, um, and there are lots of possibilities. It might be toxic metals, it might be pesticides, uh, it might be viral proteins, um, or whatever. It's a little bit so, for example, if you threw a handful of sand into your engine, it would block it. It would block up the air intake, it would block the fuel delivery, it would interfere with the burning of the fuel, and so that engine would go slow. And then there's a third mechanism by which mitochondria may go slow, and that has to do with their control. Now, what controls how many mitochondria we have, i.e. the size of our engine, and how fast they go, um, our thyroid, the thyroid gland, and the adrenal gland. Now, if you look at this from an evolutionary perspective, the body has to exactly match energy demands with energy delivery. So if I'm walking out in the jungle 10,000 years ago and a saber-toothed tiger leaps out at me, I need to run the fastest you know, 800 meters I've ever run in my life. Otherwise, I'm going to become his breakfast. And, um, and that means I need maximum energy delivery. And the adrenal gland does that with adrenaline and stress hormones, and I go like mad. But on the other hand, in the winter, when I'm trying to survive a long, cold winter when there ain't much food, we need to shut our mitochondria down and go into a kind of hibernation. And in fact, this is exactly what happens in, in, in animals that do hibernate, like bears. They shut down their mitochondria, they go very slow, their body temperature drops, they curl up in a ball, and they uh, effectively they become ME patients, or they become chronic fatigue syndrome patients. They're not spending any energy, and that allows them to survive the winter. So I see those four as the four big players in my chronic fatigue syndrome patients. The bit that confuses me listening to this, and it's utterly fascinating, and, and I, I like it when someone explains something, A, with a good analogy, and B, where the logic goes full circle for me. So it, it makes sense. Why then, in the course of this series, I, I'm, I'm speaking to various researchers and medics who are trying to get to the root of all of this. Are you saying you've already got to the root of all of this? No. What I'm saying is I've got to the root of some of this, and I'm answering the right. I'm asking the right questions. Right. We have broken chronic fatigue syndrome and ME down into two clinical pictures. So the pure chronic fatigues don't have any inflammation symptoms. You know, they don't have any fever. They don't have any enlarged lymph nodes. Um, they don't have any, as I call it, malaise, i.e., which is that sick feeling you get when you have influenza or something. You know, they're not having systemic viral symptoms. They are just tired. You know, they just know they're not functioning as well as they should. They don't particularly feel ill. They just know they have to rest a lot. They have to sleep a lot. They can just about crawl around the place. But that they are the pure chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And maybe the best example of this is somebody who is hypothyroid. 
because um, and that is an incredibly common condition. And somebody who's hypothyroid, everything goes slow. Um, you know, they, their brain goes slow, their body goes slow. Uh, they just, you know, they they just have no energy. Whereas on the other hand, say we have. Um, the patients who are chronic, chronically inflamed because they've got chronic Lyme disease or they've got chronic Epstein-Barr virus. I've just done a, seen a patient this morning with chronic cytomegalovirus infection or whatever. And they are fatigued because the body is using so much energy to fight infection, it doesn't have anything left for anything else. Right. So you know, if I gave you a dose of flu, you would get acute ME, but you would hopefully fight that virus efficiently, get rid of it, and bounce back to your former jolly self. <laughs> it all sounds so simple. And then you have people coming along promoting graded exercise therapy and CBT, and that's where Dr. Sarah Myhill gets rather annoyed? Oh, not, and I tell you what, this is the sort of thing that makes me wake up in the night, you know, seething with fury. Because these graded exercise is guaranteed to make ME and chronic fatigue syndrome patients worse. Why? You know, a condition that is defined by exercise intolerance is going to be made worse when you exercise that patient, by definition. I mean, it's a complete joke of a therapy. And, um, uh, but, uh, I mean, this is the power of manipulated studies and statistics. And um, as you may or may not know, I'm currently uh, conducting a battle against um, the PACE study. Now, for those listeners who, who, who may not be up to, to date on this, in 2011, um, the Lancet published a study that was conducted by psychiatrists, and the upshot of that study was that um, graded exercise and CBT you know, has the potential to cure 20% and improve um, 60%. It's nonsense. People working with any chronic fatigue syndrome patients knew that had to be wrong. So a Freedom of Information Act search was conducted in order to get the raw data so we could look at actually how that study was done and how those figures were number crunched. And at the end of a very long analysis that was um, primarily done by Dr. Keith Geraghty, and then this was distributed to other academic centers who were allowed to uh, pass judgment on this. And all those, there were 40 different academic centers involved who were looking at a critique of this study. Uh, and their results were published in the Journal of Health Psychology in August 2017. And essentially, it was, the result of that was this is a fraudulent study. Now, on the back of that journal, I then reported the authors of the PACE study um, to the General Medical Council last January for scientific and by implication for financial fraud. Why financial fraud? Because these people had used £5 million of public money for this fraudulent study. Now, that is very, very wrong. Now, last July, the GMC, they took six months to reply, they came back to me and they said, no case to answer. So I conducted a Freedom Information Act search of the General Medical Council and said to them, I want to know the evidence base for your decision. You know, I provided the GMC with an enormous evidence base clearly showing scientific fraud and financial fraud. And um, the GMC gave me no evidence base whatsoever for their decision. In October, um, the result came back and all the information had been redacted and blacked out, i.e. I was not allowed to see their evidence base, and my guess is they had no evidence base. So I then said to the General Medical Council, 
if you do not give me a proper evidence base, I shall take this case to the High Court and we shall judicially review that decision. And the GMC came back to me very quickly afterwards and said, um, oh, uh, we're going to review our decision um, and we will get back to you in due course. Since when I've had letters most months saying we're still reviewing our decision, we're still reviewing our decision. So it's, it's, you know, it's still in the pipeline. But as I say, what has happened is quite wrong. And I'm quite sure that the reason the GMC cannot give me a good answer is because they have no evidence base. And, um, uh, and, and as a result of this fraudulent study, which has been adopted not only by NICE, but also by um, um, bodies all over the world, many ME patients are being badly treated. They're being told to exercise. It's making them worse. Yeah, this is a, a very, very wicked situation. How hopeful are you that the current review now into its second year of the, the, the NICE guidelines, and, and we've, we've covered this on previous episodes of this series for anyone who's not up to date with that, how hopeful are you that the upshot of that will be the removal of, of what the PACE trial recommended? Um, of course, I'm a hopeless optimist, and, and I think that they will have to look at the, the information that's there and discard it. I cannot see how they can possibly react in any other way. Uh, they have got to um, reject PACE wholeheartedly for all the reasons that I've detailed. So I'm very hopeful that um, that will be rejected. What we need for chronic fatigue syndrome and ME is a proper medical-based approach to treating um, this condition. Um, and until we get that, people will continue uh, to suffer and to relapse. I find it alarming that you even have to say that sentence out loud, that until we have a medical-based treatment, it's like, well, well, obviously, but, but clearly that's a problem that needs addressing. Uh, absolutely. And I have to tell you, my patients are better scientists than the medical profession because my patients are asking the right questions. Now, I don't know all the answers. I know some of them, um, uh, um, and, and, you know, and we are working together to find all the answers. But what happens when they go to their, their, their doctors, their GPs, or the chronic fatigue syndrome units, or the psychiatrists, they're told they have mumps. They have medically unexplained symptoms. You know, it's a nonsense. It's because the doctors aren't brave enough to ask the right question and say, well, look, I don't know. And um, it's you know, an intellectually risable situation and, you know, caused me, caused me great despair. I mean, there is a, you know, the only thing I can say in defense of the doctors is that if, if as a doctor you step outside the, the, the normal paradigm of treatment, you are subject to attack. And as you may or may not know, I have been subject to endless attack from the General Medical Council for my views on how to treat chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, as you may or may not know, I've had now 30 separate investigations against me for things as ridiculous as you know, recommending vitamin B12 injections for patients with ME. You know, we know that's a very good treatment. Um, it's got a good evidence base for it. Uh, the potential for harm is zero. But, you know, I had to face um, uh, a medical tribunal to explain why I was doing that treatment. Now, as I say, the GMC has had 30 separate investigations, and the score is currently my hill 30, GMC nil. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I am very lucky. Um, I don't work in the NHS anymore, but um, I would never be able to get a job with the NHS 
now. Why? Because I've been investigated so intensely by the GMC. So if doctors go against the general thinking on these conditions, they risk losing their jobs, losing their careers, losing their reputation, um, and they are not prepared to do that. And I do have some sympathy with that. Uh, I, I think it's worth worth me clarifying with you. You said there have been 30 separate investigations by the GMC. As I understand it, none of them were from patients. No, 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 absolutely not. All the complaints came from either the GMC itself or other doctors who um, didn't understand what I was doing or from health authorities because um, they they got involved in some way or another. So, um, uh, no, I've been very lucky. My patients have been fantastically supportive. Um, and without that support, you know, I could never have um, um, uh, prevailed against, uh, against the powers that be. But, um, but yes, that is the nonsense of it. Let's, let's round this conversation up with a bit of optimism. First of all, uh, without breaching any privacy, uh, paint a picture for me of, of one of your worst patients in terms of their illness and, and, and the best success you had with them, the before and the after picture. Oh, gosh. Um, well, um, uh, you're asking the most difficult question because what I like to think is I can get all my patients improved one way or another, i.e., they, uh, and, and, and very often that improvement might take decades to fully manifest. But, uh, I mean, obvious examples, uh, one patient I can think of that immediately comes to mind, bed-bound, um, severely fatigued. I mean, these days, I ask my patients to do everything because all diagnosis is hypothesis, so I'm hypothesizing that they've got problems, putting into in place the interventions, and if they recover, then we can then infer that hypothesis is right. And if somebody is bed-bound, almost invariably there are multiple reasons for that. Um, it's often there, uh, the final trigger for ME is an acute infection, typically glandular fever. But before that, very often uh, they've had metabolic syndrome, i.e. they've been running on sugars and carbohydrates for decades. Very often they're hypothyroid, and so they've been gradually getting worse. Um, um, and with all that stress, the adrenals will be down as well. And with metabolic syndrome, one malabsorbs, and therefore you can expect to find low levels of the raw materials for mitochondria, like magnesium, like CoQ10, like acetyl-L-carnitine. So if, if people are able to put in place the entire package to support mitochondria, thyroid, um, right fuel in the tank, adrenals, and tackle the infectious uh, trigger, if they can put up and tolerate the, the, the Herx reactions, the detox reactions that one might anticipate, then you can certainly get them up and about and, and very often back to work with these interventions. And many of these interventions I'm uh, recommending, you don't need a doctor, they're freely available on my website. I describe them all in my books in detail so people can help themselves. Um, so you know, there is great potential for improvement. And, you know, uh, but the sooner these people are treated, the better the chance they have. And I'd much rather see somebody who'd been acutely ill and had their fatigue syndromes for, you know, two or three years than somebody who's come to me with, you know, fatigue you know, since childhood. And you know it's going to be a much harder work to get them back to normal. I'll put the link to your website in the show notes that come with this podcast because, like you say, it, it is an absolute mine of information. Uh, I, there's, there's only so many patients I imagine you're able to see and deal with because there are only so many hours in the day. Are, are you accepting new patients? No, at the moment I'm not, no. But what I do do is I very, very regularly have doctors sitting in with me. And, um, uh, I mean, the figures that I heard at a recent meeting is that doctors are deserting the NHS at the rate of 130 a month because they are so disillusioned 
with medicine within the NHS. They don't have the clinical freedoms to do what they see fit. And um, I've set up a website called Natural Health Worldwide, and the idea is that anybody can access any doctor who's interested in chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, any nutritional therapist who can put in place many of the regimes that I've been describing, and also experienced patients, i.e. patients of mine or others who have walked the path and got better and can help and want to help others, and very often they give their time for nothing. So the Natural Health Worldwide is, is a very good portal where, again, you, uh, some, some of the practitioners charge a little bit for their time, many give their time for nothing, uh, and that helps. And as I say, I regularly have doctors sitting in with me, um, um, health, health, um, uh, um, qualified health uh, practitioners uh, sitting in with me and learning these techniques um, from what I'm doing. How do you stay so positive, focused and determined, Sarah? Oh, because I have such lovely patients. <laughs> and, 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 and therein lies the joy. I mean, what better thing to do than restore somebody's life? Uh, uh, I mean, and I'm so lucky that they write back to me and, 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 and with lovely comments. And that is just a wonderful thing. Well, you've just cheered me up no end with, with that last half hour of conversation. I know you're incredibly busy, so I'm incredibly grateful for the time. And, and I'm sure people listening will be as well for, for your insights. Uh, Dr. Sarah Myhill, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure, Gary. Thank you for asking me again. Dr. Sarah Myhill, you'll find links to her clinic and that website that she's set up for like-minded doctors in the show notes that accompany this podcast. If you're listening in iTunes, please rate and review the show there. And until next time, thank you for listening.